In Peter Drucker's essay, Managing Oneself, which he wrote back in the early 50s, and which, if you haven't read it, you, you might want to. It's quite uh, profound about the challenges we face in this knowledge economy and all of that. But uh, anyway, I was rereading it recently, and I was surprised to see that he opens by talking about John Calvin. Uh, he notes that two men exploded onto the scene in 1536. John Calvin, who we're talking about, and uh, Ignatius of Loyola, who we haven't yet talked about, but we will. Ignatius is the guy who is going to launch the Jesuits, which is a new monastic order in the Catholic Church. He starts it in 1534. But Drucker argues that the reason both Calvin and Ignatius are able to launch and lead these revolutionary movements um, is because they both had, they both developed the practice of writing down what they expected would happen based on the decisions that they were making. And then they reviewed what actually happened later on and they adjusted and managed their own behavior based on the results they were getting. And he argued that this was uh, sort of revolutionary behavior and he argues that we ought to adopt it as well. Well, I've I'm not sure that that's true. I've never read that about Calvin, but who am I to question Peter Drucker? If it is true, it's the third way Calvin uh, influences the world. The first is by pastoring. He's known uh, more as a scholar and a writer than as a pastor. His reputation is that he's a rather acerbic, uh, sort of cold, cerebral thinker, uh, long on control and discipline not a particularly warm and gracious shepherd. All the pictures you see of Calvin make him look like he has a, a somewhat sharp uh, and unpleasant personality. Uh, and I think there's clearly some truth to this. He had a reputation for being arrogant early on. It, it, he's going to grow in this, but as a young man, he was pretty arrogant. One biographer said, Calvin believed that he had never met his intellectual equal, and he was probably right. Um, so he was a little bit um, vain, perhaps. Um, and his nickname in school was the accusative case, which uh, I think is actually quite funny. Um, I'm not sure, well, maybe I do know a few people. I would go back and rename the accusative case. But uh, anyway, he was a bit uh, sharp and arrogant. Um, and there's no doubt that if you go with the theory that, that you would vote uh, the person you're most likely to vote to be president in the U.S. presidential election is the person you'd most want to sit down and have a beer with. Uh, there's no doubt, if that's true, that you would pick Luther over Calvin. Uh, but if you study Calvin's life, I think um, you see that he's not just a scholar. He has a softer, more pastoral side. And he worked enormously hard to shepherd and care for the uh, well-being, not just the spiritual well-being, although certainly that, but the well-being uh, of the people that he was leading at this church in Geneva. He, it, most people believe that he worked himself into an early grave because he was so committed uh, to the care and nurture of his congregation. So the first way that Calvin would be known, it would be um, as, a, uh, as a pastor. The second could be, if Drucker is right, could be as a leader uh, and how he shaped leadership. And it, it's, it, it, there is reason to say that he's no slouch on this front. Um, some equate Calvin with predestination. 
Um, and there's reason for that. Um, it was not actually new to him. Um, those who argue for predestination, and I put myself in that camp, would say, well, it seems to, seems to get a lot of ink from the Apostle Paul. Um, we certainly see it with Augustine and Luther and Zwingli. They don't make as much of it as Calvin does. Uh, and, and perhaps the reason that Calvin gets more credit for this is because he, his writing is, is so clear and persuasive and sort of elegant um, that, that he is able to explain things that other people uh, maybe are not so able to explain. Uh, in any event, he's known for predestination, but one of the bigger areas that Calvin would, would be arguing for in his theological writings would be the providence of God over all things. And that's not just that, um, that if something happens, it's not just you know, dumb luck that it happened, but that God is able to sort of orchestrate things behind the scenes. But it's also the idea that God should be viewed as being uh, involved and, and um, engaged and uh, um, concerned about every area of our life, that, that, that uh, God is not just you know, the Lord of our spiritual life or of Sunday morning, but that he cares about Monday uh, and Tuesday and all day Saturday as well, that he's not just Lord uh, of, the, of the church, but he's to be Lord of the classroom and the courtroom and the boardroom and and so Calvin cares about everything that's going on. And if you read about him, you, you, you discover, you know, he's, he's involved in the sort of the minute details of the civil affairs of the city of Geneva. He designs the sewer system because he says, you know, good sewers matter to people and they matter to God. So, so it's not just that Calvin has got uh, this, his influence as a pastor. He's got influence in leadership. But uh, the big way Calvin makes his mark is by writing. There is a case that can be made today that the world is more shaped by uh, screens than by pages. That is, by uh, pictures, moving pictures in particular, more than words, perhaps. I'm not, I'm not ready to say that completely. But even if it's true today, it was less true 50 years ago, and even less true perhaps 500 years ago, when um, the Gutenberg's printing press was new, and it was the new uh, way that you could influence people. There was no, you know, there was no uh, internet, there was no social media, there was no Netflix, there was no TikTok. Uh, pastors were generally the most educated people in an area, not just in spiritual things, but in all issues, they were the most educated people. And the main um, events of the week, <laughs> uh, the main intellectual events of the week, was church, and it was a sermon. And, uh, and additionally, anything else that may be written up. There's just not all that much being written up. And so if you were somebody who was getting their, their writings, their thinking, uh, put down on paper and distributed to others, then you were making a big mark. And if you were a particularly competent writer that people could understand, then, uh, then that's going to make you even more significant. And this is where Calvin excelled. excelled. As I've said, Luther was a bigger-than-life figure, right? He always controlled the room. He was the life of the party. Everybody liked Luther. Everybody wanted to be around Luther. You can picture him in the pubs leading everybody in singing. And he just, he, he was a larger-than-life character. K 
Calvin is not. He's much more uh, of an introvert. But as a result, after Luther dies, his influence goes way down. And not that many people follow in the, in the very tight Lutheran trajectory. Um, you may remember I said that there were three trajectories coming out of the Protestant Reformation. You've got Luther and those that are following Luther and Lutherism and the Augsburg Confession and Luther's writings. Then you've got those that are following Zwingli, who's going to hand things off to Luther, or excuse me, to Calvin. This is the whole Reformed area. And then you've got the more radical um, Anabaptist um, Baptist tradition. And um, so Luther is going to lose influence because his writings, again, <laughs> Luther writes like a rabbit runs. It's just all over the place. It's sort of unpredictable. Calvin is very thoughtful. He's a lawyer. He builds an argument. He writes in a very systemic fashion. He, he lays the foundation. He builds upon the foundation. And um, so his writings are going to win more and more people over, over time. And um, so we're going to see that Calvin's Institutes, which, by the way, get called a lot of things, not just Calvin's Institutes, but the Institutes or the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, uh, some would argue, by the way, that it, they should be called the Introduction to the Christian Religion. But Calvin's Institutes are going to be this... Um, enormously important work that is going to um, put Calvin on the map. And uh, I, am, um, I am doing this particular episode in the hope that I can get more people to read Calvin's Institutes, which I think would be a win. So I hope that you do it. Um, uh, I, am, I am telling you about it in part because I hope that you will step up and take this on. Now, let me just say, as I get started here, I'm, I'm struggling, as you can tell. The institutes uh, are, are often, the pronouns get confusing because it's referred to in some cases as a book, right? The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's, it's the title of a book. But it's also four books. So I, I sort of skip back and forth between pronouns that refer to it as, uh, as an it and uh, pronouns that refer to it as a they. Um, in any event, my goal <laughs> is to get you to read it slash them um, as part of your devotional routine. Now, this may be, this is somewhat of a big ask because uh, our contemporary Western culture is a little bit uh, allergic to, um, to serious reading. Uh, and even though I've said that Calvin, it's easier to read Calvin than it is to read Luther, because Luther sort of wanders. He has um, uh, ADD, and I you know, can sort of throw him under the bus since I've admitted that I also have ADD. Um, Calvin will write much more coherently, but he's dense, and uh, it tends to be thick writing, long paragraphs, and so some will be scared off. Um, but hey, what kind of person sits down to listen to 100 lectures on anything? So perhaps you're in that rare 1% that will make it. So the topic for today's episode is the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, I'm not going to back up and do the timeline again. I've been doing it pretty consistently. I'm hoping that by now 
you're sort of, uh, you got the big building blocks starting to fall into place. The church gets launched out of the book of Acts, and then we go through this 300 years where it's getting, you know, held back by the Romans, and then the Rome falls, and we move into this thousand-year period of, of the Middle Ages, and you now know more about the Middle Ages than you learned from Monty Python films. Um, I'm assuming that the big pieces are starting to fall into place. So all I'm going to say by way of setup today is we're stepping back 500 years into uh, our unfolding discussion of the Reformation, and that this is lecture six in, the, in our study of the Reformation. So we did two on Luther, did one on the five solas, uh, did one on uh, Zwingli, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, then did... Uh, then have, have done one um, so far on Calvin, and now this is the, the second that is sort of on Calvin. Calvin is the French humanist who becomes a Protestant. He's trained as a lawyer. Because he becomes a Protestant he, and, and starts to write, uh, he has to flee France, ends up in Geneva where he becomes a pastor. He doesn't want to be a pastor. He wants to be a scholar. He wants to live a quiet life. Uh, he has no intention on staying in Geneva more than one night. He's actually diverted there. He never intends to go there. He's diverted there by a, by a military skirmish. And so uh, he goes to Geneva to spend one day, one evening in Geneva. But uh, the pastor of Geneva, Geneva has been a Protestant city for all of a few weeks at the time that Calvin uh, shows up. The pastor, a guy by the name of Farrell, hears that the author of the Institutes is in town. And he goes to this uh, pub where Calvin is staying. And, um, and he is convinced that Calvin is there as an act of God and that he's an answer to uh, Pharaoh's prayers and he's not going to let Calvin lead. So Calvin does not want to stay. He wants to go to Strasbourg. He wants to be this you know, thoughtful uh, scholar, writer, uh, live a quiet life, all of those things. But um, Farrell is not going to let him leave. And, and so Calvin will eventually stay, uh, agree to stay. He's there for about a year and a half when, when both Calvin and Farrell are chased out of town uh, by, the, by the town authorities. They're, they're, they're viewed to be too disruptive. And this is just fine with Calvin. He goes to Strasbourg, rewrites the Institutes, um, by the way, um, and... He's there for, I think, three years, gets married. Um, he likes Strasbourg, but, but Geneva does not do well without him. And so they come back, hat in hand, and ask him to come back. They don't actually invite Farrell back. They invite Calvin back. And for 18 months, Calvin says, not a chance. He'd rather die 100 deaths <laughs> than go back and pastor that church. Um, and... Uh, yet they, they continue to uh, lobby him. And they make a, a number of concessions about what, what they will do if Calvin agrees to come on board. And so eventually he does. So uh, that said, you know about Calvin. We're going to focus today on Calvin's Institutes. What can we say about the Institutes of the Christian religion? Uh, this collection of four books that's referred to as one book um, that I am suggesting uh, put him on the map. 
Um, Calvin is, the, is sort of viewed by the other reformers as the kid brother. Um, he's, he's younger than everybody else is, so they've got the Reformation launched when he comes along. And uh, he's, he's viewed as sort of this arrogant kid brother that they don't really have a whole lot of time for until the Institutes come out. Because the Institutes immediately uh, become uh, a bestseller. It's a small book, so it's, a, it's contraband, right? I mean, you could, you could get put to death in France if you get found having a copy of the Institute. So it's, a, it's published to be a small book that was easy to hide, um, but it instantly becomes the book of the Reformation. Uh, everybody is reading it, and uh, this, is, this is why Farrell had read it, and, and he knows who Calvin is. Um, and it, it elevates Calvin onto the scene. He becomes known because he is the author of the Institutes. And uh, his stature only grows when the Catholic Church bans the book officially um, and lists Calvin as the number one Protestant enemy uh, because of the book. So, what can we say about it? What should you know about the Institutes other than Calvin wrote it. It's viewed as one of the most important books um, of all time, most important Christian books of all time, certainly the, the most important book to come out of the 16th century, and it's still in print 500 years later. Well, um, it's important to note that the Institutes is the work of a lifetime. So the first edition comes out in 1536, and it's relatively small. Again, he's written this while he's still in France before he even goes to Geneva. It's only six chapters. But he is going to do six major rewrites over the course of his lifetime. He's going to do five additional rewrites of the book in French. And each time the book is going to get longer and longer. Uh, the last edition of the Institutes, which comes out in 1559, uh, not long before he died, is so big that, again, it takes four books to be published. By the way, the Latin and the French, so th when I say he does a rewrite, this isn't like a second printing, third printing, fourth printing kind of thing. He does major rewrites on this in both the Latin, which is for scholars, and the French. And these, the Latin and the French are different books as well because the Latin he writes for scholars and so he'll make some different arguments or he'll illustrate his arguments differently than the work he does in, in French which is written for lay people and so he writes, um, he, he writes a little bit more simplistically. He oversees, by the way, the translation back and forth between Latin and French. So this is a, um, there's a lot of reworks that happen on this book. He's not satisfied with it until the very end of his life. Uh, so question two, why did he write it? Is it I, question one was, what is it? Question two, why did he write it? Um, so if it's a um, work of a lifetime, 16th century introduction to the Christian faith, why did he feel the need to write this? Well, there's actually three reasons Calvin tells us that he writes this. The, the, the preeminent one, at least by the end of his life, the reason he's writing this much longer um, book is because um, he wants to provide uh, a, a summary of the Christian faith for a new believer. And there's a lot of new believers at this point. Remember, 
Um, Protestantism is new in one sense. So Christianity is, at this point, 1,500 years old. But, but Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Bucer and all these reformers are sort of repositioning uh, the faith. They're saying, okay, we, we jumped the tracks here a couple hundred years ago, and you need to, you need to see this differently. And so there's not this kind of, a, uh, of an introduction to the Christian faith for people that are new to the faith. The second reason um, that he writes it is to serve as a reference guide for people that are going into the ministry. Uh, there were not a lot of seminaries out there at this time, Protestant uh, training grounds for pastors. And so this book becomes um, a, a bit of a backdrop for them. And then the third reason that he wrote it, um, and this is perhaps interesting, maybe just to me, uh, but he writes it to defend Protestantism uh, against the persecutions that are going on. And so he writes an introductory letter to the king of France. And he writes this uh, in an effort to make sure that the king of France understands that, that the stream of reformed uh, Protestantism, so again, there's a sense in which the Reformation is a term that, that refers uh, to everything that Luther launches, which includes all of what Calvin is going to be a part of. There's another sense in which the word reformed refers to those who take Luther's Reformation in a different direction. And so reformed gets, um, gets associated more with Zwingli and the branch that follows with Zwingli, which of course includes John Calvin. The third branch is the radical reformers, the Anabaptists. They are viewed as being uh, more problematic to the government, more uh, likely to be anarchists. Uh, their, their, their division or their separation from the Catholic Church is even more radical. So Luther's is the least radical. He holds on to a number of the trappings of the Roman Church as compared to uh, Calvin. Uh, and then, uh, but, but, but the radical reformers hold on to even less. And so Calvin will write to the king of France, right, which is where he was. He had to flee France because of the persecution of the French government. And he still cares about the people in France. And so he will write a letter to the king of France to say, hey, we're more with Luther than we are with the Anabaptists. So don't, don't make a mistake here. The king of France uh, is, is somebody who does not get along with the king of England. And the king of England does not get along, uh, does not like the, the, what's being agitated by Luther. So the king of France, although he is a Catholic, is going to like Luther as much as he can, just to sort of tweak the nose of the, uh, the King of England. So in all of this, uh, Calvin sees an opportunity to try and stop the persecution that is going on of the Protestants in France. And so he writes to the king. And you can read the preface. I just got a new copy of the Institute's uh, a little while ago, 
and, uh, and there is the introduction in the very first pages to the king of France. And additionally, Calvin is going to argue, remember, he's part of this magisterial reform movement, and the magisterial reformers are not those that are somehow more majestic uh, uh, or more ironic in, in any sense. The magisterial reformers refer to those reformers who are going to have things to say that are going to tie the church and the governments together more than some of the other reformers are going to do. And so Calvin believes that the king is actually in a position of sort of biblical authority. And he is going to argue that as the king, he needs to understand some things that are going on, and he needs to, uh, uh, he needs to make certain reforms. But, but he's also going to write um, the Institutes in part to try and stop the persecution. Okay, so third question. Uh, why are the Institutes organized the way they're organized? Um, now, this may not strike you as a question. You don't think much about the way a book is organized, uh, provided the author can, can walk you through it. But there's a significant difference between the way Calvin organizes the book initially, the first couple editions, and the way he's organizing it at the end. And uh, I think there's, there's some, um, some things to be learned here. So initially, there, there doesn't appear to be uh, a lot of thought as to how he's organized the topics, the introduction to the Christian faith. Um, but that's because he's actually following some of the earlier writings made by Luther. And Luther, as I have noted numerous times now, tends to be a bit um, uh, scattershot. He tends to write top of mind, and he tends to go in whatever direction he tends to go. And Calvin, wanting to associate himself with Luther and not be confused with the Anabaptists and others, he, he takes on an outline from Luther. He's not plagiarizing Luther. He's just, because he's got his own thinking here. I mean, they, they like each other on many things. They dislike each other on others. So some people are confused that Calvin would follow a guideline from Luther, uh, especially since Calvin is so much uh, clearer than Luther on things. But, um, but part of the reason that he is doing this is because he wants people to associate him and associate the, the, the French and the Reformed movements, Protestant movements, with Luther, not with the Anabaptists. So he will follow, in the early editions, he will follow a guide set down by Luther. In the middle editions uh, of Calvin's Institutes, and if you buy a copy of Calvin's Institutes, you're, you're almost certainly going to end up with a copy of the 1559 edition. It will have the preface to, uh, the, to the king, but uh, it will be the last edition. In the middle editions, the order seems to follow the Apostles' Creed. Now, uh, this is a little confusing to scholars because uh, the Apostles' Creed tends to unfold, like most creeds, in a Trinitarian fashion. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and so you've got God the Father and you've got some creation things, God the Son, uh, and you have um, Jesus and the Incarnation and all these issues about um, sin and salvation, and then the Holy Spirit tends to lead you into a path of, of sanctification and the Christian life. 
So there's three big pieces to the creeds for the most part, but you have four books. So people will say, well, why do you have, <laughs> how can you be following the Apostles' Creed if you have four books, not three? Well, that's because in Calvin, and he tells us this, Calvin views the creeds as having more of a fourfold uh, um, division. So it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But then there's a fourth category, and it's not the Christian life, it's the church. So Calvin is very, very strong on the church. He will refer to the church as our mother, and uh, he will be a, a huge advocate for, um, be, you, have to you have to live the Christian life in the context of a local church. You cannot do otherwise, and you have to be involved in that church you have, to be, you have to do your Bible study in community and all these other things. And to do otherwise, as many Christians today do, uh, would not make any sense to Calvin. So, so the middle editions are going to follow this, um, this, this Apostles' Creed unfolding. But then, in the later editions, he is going to organize them around the Book of Romans. And... Um, he does this, apparently persuaded uh, by, um, by Melanchthon. And Melanchthon, who is uh, sort of following Luther, Melanchthon will write something very similar to Calvin's Institutes because um, everybody is seeing the need for this, like seeing the pastoral need to try and help people understand, okay, how, what is it that I believe? And Melanchthon... Uh, in his writing, which, by the way, Calvin translates his work not just into Latin, the language of scholars, but also into French. Melanchthon, in, in Germany, does not translate it into German. And so his book gets a lot less traction and is a lot less significant over time. But Melanchthon will argue that the way we actually intersect the faith uh, the way we understand faith, the way we sort of explore faith initially is not uh, per the Apostles' Creed. It's much more the book uh, of Romans, which means that we sort of start uh, with the whole idea of, you know, God and God imprinting things on our heart and, and our fall and all of that, and then I move forward. I'm going I'm to go to that in a minute. Let me just note that... Um, that the book of Romans is written by Paul, one of uh, only two books, I believe, uh, perhaps it's Colossians, um, that he writes uh, that he's also not visited the church in Colossae. I think it is. So, but the book of Romans, all the other books that he's writing, he's writing to the church in Philippi, or he's writing to the church in Galatia, he's writing to the, you know, he's writing to uh, people that he has spent time with. So he's already given an introduction to the Christian faith to them. But he's writing to the Romans while he's in prison. He's not been there. He hopes to go there. He tells them that. So the book of Romans has been understood in, in some senses to be an introduction to the Christian faith. Now, <laughs> introduction is, um, the book of Romans is, is deep weeds. And uh, so it's not an introduction in the, in the simplistic sense that you've got to learn, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4 before you, or ABCs before you learn how to read. It's an introduction in the sense of these are the big foundational ideas. And so, um, so towards the end, Calvin, like Melanchthon before him, 
will organize his introduction to the faith following the book of Romans. I, again, perhaps I'm just um, geeking out here, uh, and this is not of interest to you at all, but when I went to write something like the Institutes, and that's a, that is a laughable, you, you should be laughing at this point, um, Packer says in the introduction to Knowing God, um, as a clown yearns to play Hamlet, so I long to write a treatise on God. He then goes on to say, um, this is not it. Uh, he, he, Packer says he's not the least bit qualified to write uh, a, a treatise on God. So <laughs> I'm left saying, well, Packer isn't qualified to write a treatise on God um, and compares himself to a clown. What am I supposed to compare myself to? Uh, what is what is you know five or six comic ridiculous levels below a clown? But uh, early in my tenure as pastor at Christ Church, I tried to lay out um, the, the 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 foundations of our faith, or the to provide the parameters, the fence posts of our faith. Fence posts, arguing the image there being that we don't believe. It, we're not arguing you've got to believe a certain thing, like it's a, a dot, and it's very, very, you know, you've got to, we've all got to believe exactly the same thing about everything, but arguing that there are a handful of pivotal issues and that a statement of faith is sort of providing the outer parameters that you can believe. If you go outside of those parameters, then you, you are outside the fence posts and you end up in a danger zone, um, and that these handful of, um, of fence posts are, are, the, are the pivotal issues. And so they're about the authority of Scripture and they're about the nature of God and they're about the personal work of Jesus, right? There's just a few of them. Churches that have lots and lots of fence posts end up confining people to believing. Everybody's got to believe exactly the same kind of thing. People that don't have enough fence posts are not providing protection, so, um, so we, can, we can have different understandings on lots of issues and on lots of topics if they're within the fence post. So I set out to write and say, okay, here's the fence posts. And the first one that I did, because I was just following the statement of faith at, at Christ Church, was on the authority of Scripture. And I was uh, later talking with an earlier pastor of Christ Church, Walt Liefeld, and he was... He was um, very uh, appreciative of the effort, but one of the things that he said was, you know, it's, it's weird to start there, because if you're starting there, you're instantly into topics of authority and epistemology and worldview, and how do we know, you know, how do we know what we know? And, and statements of faith tend to start there because the other articles of faith are going to flow out of the Bible. We're going to argue that the Bible is our you know, primary source of authority when it comes to these other issues. So I started there to say, this is why, I'm starting here because we got to figure out how do we know what we know. He pointed out that that's not where people tend to intersect with their faith. And we tend to intersect with our faith in different ways, a sense of God and intuition of God and other things. And so that's what we see uh, Calvin moving towards over the course of his life. So um, when you get to the four books of uh, the final edition of Calvin's Institute, book one uh, reflects Romans one, book two sort of lines up with Romans two through five, book three 
follows uh, 6 through 11, and then book 4 takes us to the end uh, of Romans 12 through 16. Well, th there's so much more that could be said about, um, about this, about John Calvin, for instance. The more I study him, the more I think he's, he gets a bad rap. He's, he's, he's written off as being a little bit more uh, of an introvert. Excuse me, he's, he's written off as being a little bit more caustic than I think he is. I think he's an introvert and maybe a little socially awkward. And to be fair, he doesn't want the job of being pastor, right? He runs from it as best he can. Um, and once he gets it, he works hard to do what he thinks is right. Um, so I think he's a very hardworking guy who works very diligently to try and shepherd uh, the flock. But um, he gets a reputation for being a little bit too stern uh, by today's standards. Um, I think it's important to note how much Calvin will uh, work on unity because I'm presenting um, this in, in, in this Reformation era. I'm noting how the church is splintering. Calvin will work hard to try and pull everybody back together, and not just Protestants, but he'll work for a while to try and get um, reconciliation with, or at least hold out hope for reconciliation with the Catholic Church. Um, and early on in his life, this is possible. You're eventually going to, we're going to see this religious war that is brutal. And then the Council of Trent is going to make it just, as more and more unfolds, it's just going to be obvious that the church isn't going to pull it back together. But Luther will work on this. We'll pick up a little bit of that later. Let me just um, summarize by way of, of uh, ending. Let me just summarize the, the books because I'm hoping, again, that you're going, to, um, you're going to start to read. Not straight through, by the way. <laughs> that would be really daunting. I'm, I'm, um, the Calvin's Institutes is one of the books I just read yeah, a paragraph, a page or two each day and sort of slowly, you know, over the course of years and decades, make my way through. So book one is going to be on the knowledge of God. Uh, also going to talk about how we know God through, um, of course, through uh, Christ and through creation, very much what we see in Romans chapter 1. He's going to note the widespread impact of the fall, again, Romans 1. He's going to talk about how God accommodates himself to us, how God uses uh, famously baby talk to try and help explain to us what's going on. Uh, also talk about how uh, we need to see everything through glasses, sort of early worldview conversations. And then there's uh, some writing in, in book one about the Holy Spirit and uh, the Trinity and, and topics like this. In, in book two, he's going to focus on Christ as our Redeemer. Uh, he's going to, again, start with our sinfulness. He's going to argue we've got to understand who we are. So Calvin's Institutes will open with this idea that if you want to live well, you have to understand who God is, and you have to understand who you are. Your identity uh, needs to be well understood. He's then going to talk about multiple uses of the law. He's going to talk about um, the, the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Um, he's going to talk about the fact that we are justified. Both Abraham and Paul uh, are justified on the basis of faith alone. He's going to get into baptism, and he will be, okay, so this might surprise you, um, but Calvin, as Luther, will be 
advocating infant baptism. It's the Anabaptists. It's those that are going to baptize again that are, are, you know, we'll get to John Smith, the first Baptist, and that whole tradition coming up later. But he's going to argue for um, uh, infant baptism. He's going to talk, uh, again, about Christ, Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, um, and, and then talk about the atonement. In book three, he's going to write about how we receive Christ, how we receive the grace of God, how we, how we uh, lean into the benefits and the sanctification, sanctifying work of Christ. Uh, he's going to explore topics of faith and regeneration and, and repentance. Uh, you're going to get the longest uh, section of all in Calvin's Institutes, which will be on prayer um, and a little bit on the doctrine of justification. And then in book four, um, which is titled just so you understand what you're, what you're headed for, the external means by which God invites us into the society of Christ. Um, he's going to talk about the church. He's going to talk about sacraments. He's going to talk about the offices in the church. Remember, at this point, the church has been this big, huge uh, institution, this, this uh, overarching, dominating uh, institution of the Roman Catholic Church coming out of Rome and, and having all this political power. And, and in, against a lot of that, and against this control coming from someplace else, he's going to talk about the local church and the offices in the local church. And he's going to talk about lay leadership in the local church and other things. And this, he's going to be against bishops and archbishops and other things. Not too surprising. He's going to, he's going to write about... Um, Sacraments and uh, baptism and Eucharist, so only two sacraments. And so he's going to be building the case, again, uh, an introduction to the Christian faith. So let me end by encouraging you to read the Institutes. Not all at once, but over the course of the rest of your life, reading a few paragraphs a day and using that as a leverage point to move on. I'm not suggesting you replace the Bible with the Institutes. The Bible is our key text. I want, to, I want you reading the Bible every day. But I'm suggesting that uh, as opposed to some of the other books that I have recommended and tried to bring to the forefront here, books like uh, Augustine's Confessions, and later on we'll talk about um, Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and some of these great Christian works that you might just sit down and read as a book, uh, I would put... Calvin's Institute's closer to, say, uh, uh, Pascal's Pensees or Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ. These are, these are things that you just might read just a little bit each day and let you um, think about them and ponder them. Well, we have more to talk about in terms of the Reformation, in terms of the 16th century, in terms of the uh, Counter-Reformation, in terms of all that. So we will be coming back to this topic as we continue with 100 plus moving through the Reformation. See you then.